So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hello. Hey. Um, happy Shrove Tuesday, love. <laughs> happy Tuesday. All right, y'all. Welcome back to First Bite on Shrove Tuesday, hence the lovely, um, the lovely beads and all the awesomeness. Uh, let me begin. With Wait, what a, did you call it? It's Shrove Tuesday. It's is the it Tuesday fat, before Ash Wednesday. Yes, but Lutherans oh. call it Shrove Tuesday. Okay. okay. So, yes. I know. Yeah, I know. I know. 
see you're learning something. Y'all, this is a live one tonight and we are so surprised. surprised. I'm happy to be here. It's been, um, it's been a Tuesday. So we are right here with you um, ever so live. So if you have a question, feel free to type it in the chat box because we'll be able to answer them all night long. Um, let me start with a warm and dry long distance hug from everyone that's battling this frigid blast of cold air, the record-breaking snowfall. If you're anything like us here in Coldertown, South Carolina, we're trying to dry out from the whopping thunderstorm from last night. That um, The one that was so bad that I didn't think I'd keep Bear in his bed, and somehow we managed to um, 45 attempts later, but you know, A for effort. Um, I am so proud to share that my lovely podcasting partner, Miss Erin Forward, MSPCCC SLP, uh, she just wrapped a major presentation with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association this past weekend. So Erin, what did you cover? Uh, interdisciplinary care in the NICU and post-NICU. So basically what we talk about, basically what we do that's not in the sessions. Awesome. Yes. And, and I know for a fact, because I heard back from a lot of the lovely attendees that you just rocked it. So congratulations. Bravo, lady. Bravo. Okay. So uh, before we dig into today's episode, I just want to throw a bit of advice out there. Y'all, we work through our case studies and we offer the advice and we highly recommend that y'all check out the articles and take the courses that we reference from the subject matter experts. While we work to build each other up, and we've done this, this is our 136 episodes, we've done this for three years now, it's imperative that we follow the evidence, trust, but verify. I see plenty of folks on social media um, selling their wares and their knowledge, but don't forget to go back and verify that the information being offered is current, best practice, and that it's applicable to the patient, that you're not taking one research article and carte blanche going to all of these patients, but that the information presented is applicable to those specific patients that you're on the hunt for, that you're trying to problem solve with. Um, so, all right, so there it is. All right, so on to the good stuff. And I have um, a ton of links pulled. So let's start with uh, routines-based intervention. Do you want me to start with that one? You, can, you go ahead. Okay, I love you've been, you've been ready. <laughs> This is one of my favorite things. Okay. So to start with, when we're talking about routines-based intervention and how it works with pediatric feeding disorders, there's some great resources that I recommend everybody um, uh, check out. Um, the first one, it is the Florida Guided Routines-Based Intervention. Now, Florida is actually on the cutting edge for um, and, and it's being driven a lot by Dr. Juliana Woods, um, another from Florida. Uh, she's from one of the universities there. Forgive me. I don't remember which university, but another routines-based intervention uh, specialist is actually Carrie Ebert, who we have had on the podcast and she's coming back next month as well. They talk about how everything that we have to be, everything that we do is framed from coaching the parent, Right and seeking to understand uh, what's going on in the family's world with respect to their PFD. So 
a lot of times you actually start by going through a routine space questionnaire. Now we all have, when we go to a session, the, the standard questions that we ask right out the gate, I'm normally, okay, so any new medication changes, any new doctor's appointments, Erin, what are some of the questions that you ask when you go do your check-ins? Yeah. So any, as you mentioned, any medical, I like to frame it as, and I forget the, it depends on the, the parent and the family and the way that mm-hmm. I'll frame the question, but you know, any other changes that you've noticed this week? Are there any, from a communication standpoint, have there been any breakdowns in communication that you've had trouble navigating this week? How I'll always ask, like, how did the home exercise program go this week? What the one thing that we worked on, how did you feel that that not, how did it go, but how did you feel that, that you worked through that as a family? What are some things that we can work through today to help either better what we were working on or did that not go as planned and we kind of need to take a step back? Yes. Yes. And that's okay to take a step back because if you troubleshoot it and it, it wasn't successful, then we just re reframe, recast and regroup. Mm-hmm. Now, this is why routine spaced intervention is critical for working with our little ones that have a PFD. We are there maybe one hour a week, right? Some of our patients I might get 30 minutes with, um, especially for my teletherapy palliative care patients. And that's 30 minutes. That's it. So for either there's 168 hours a week. And I know this because I just did this in the latest edit. So there's 168 hours in a week. That means for 167 to 167.5 hours, it is the caregiver, the family member. Um, and the caregivers that can be daycare workers, a nanny, um, a big brother, an aunt, an uncle, foster care. It is those individuals that are responsible for implementing and troubleshooting our PFD strategies. So when you do RBI and when you embrace RBI and truthfully leave your bag of toys and resources at the door and only use what's available in the home for the PFD, it's fantastic. So here are some strategies. When I go into the house and I seek to understand first, what does this family's approach to PO intake look like? Uh, Because when they come to us in a clinic, when they're at the doctor's office, normally it's a weight check and they're out, right? Weight check labs, um, maybe a couple charts, a couple of questions, and then they're gone. The physicians don't always even get to see the child eat. And when we're in a clinic, my clinic is, my clinic is COVID clean, y'all. My clinic is spotless, but I don't have the same setup. When we're at home, if they're anything like my house, there's probably dirty socks in the bathroom because one kid stripped, there might be toothpaste on the sink. You're lucky if, um, there's clean, sterile syringes and bottles because the dirty dishes trickle over. They never end dirty dishes, never end, especially with multiple children. And you understand the pace that the family's trying to keep. So my first step for a routine-based intervention for PFD is to seek to understand what does this PFD look like when the whole family has to address it? Mm-hmm. All right. what, do you, what do you look for? What's your next strategy? Well, I was actually talking with my student about this the other day because I have a patient who I picked up. I've been starting to see 
I've been starting to see some kids at home, which I love. Um, and there's one kiddo that I see who's in foster care and they, what I said was, you know, if I was in the clinic, I would make that. I know what recommendations I would make in the clinic yeah. for this family, what their home exercise program would be for them to sit at the table with family during meal time to help serve food, to engage with the food in certain ways. But I thought I was like, you look at this household and you look at what mealtime looks like right now. And not everyone is eating at the same time in the morning. Yes. And there's people running around and there's a lot more uh, sensory input that may be impacting mealtime. And so I already know all those recommendations that I would have made if I was in the clinic, none of them are going to work right away because the ideal recommendations don't fit this family. And so now I'm having to go and think about what other ways I can take steps to help this family meet their goals. And I say this family because it's all about this family. And in my lecture, I went through Asha's and this was for the NICU, but also for EI, Asher's, Asher's recommendations for what a NICU therapist, what our scope of practice entails. Mm -hmm. And they specifically say assessment and treatment of the infant and the family. Yes. Because when you're assessing and treating, you're not just assessing the child, you're treating the family. Because if I make a recommendation for this child to be held in elevated sideline and it looks great and I feed them, it's fantastic. And they're showing no signs of symptoms of aspiration and caregiver maybe has more difficulties from a motor standpoint because of something underlying, or they don't have the right equipment to help with, you know, we either I give them some other compensatory strategies like a pillow, or we work to maybe have the child on the other side. There's, if a recommendation does not fit the family, it doesn't matter because I can feed them perfectly in the session and I'm not feeding them the other eight times a day. I had a conversation with my friend who's an OT and we were talking about, she's like, I have to work with a child on dressing and undressing. They do that twice a day, which is still a big part, but it's in the morning yeah. and it's at night. And we may have behaviors during that because it's difficult. These children are eating sleepy. five to eight times a day and they're yes. sleepy. Yes. You can, I can't speak to that. I don't have children, oh, no. but <laughs> she's like feeding is, you know, whether it's three meals, two snacks or an infant that's eating eight times a day, like that happens every time. And if this family, if this is difficult, that's eight times a day that they're going through that trauma of trying to feed yes. their child and have it not work. And so the family is so important. And as a new clinician, I think it can be hard. And I'm a newer clinician. It can be hard because you have these research articles and these recommendations. And I've gone to these courses and this person said, do this. But if it's not working for the family, then you need to find something else and we need to be creative within safety for a child. But that's when you have to think outside the box and listen to your families more because they're going to give you a lot of hints based yes. on what questions you ask them and how you observe them let them feed, like you said, go in and see what they're doing first, because that's where they're, that's the place that they're starting at. If you already go in and start tweaking things, we don't even know where they're starting. Yes. Okay. You, you keep 
you talk about the goals and listening to them. This is why we do the RBI questionnaire. This is why we go through and we ask, talk to me about this. How is this working? Seeking to understand that. But one of the big suggestions that I have for utilizing evaluation and treatment of a PFD within the RBI framework is the actual goal writing. And this just mm -hmm. came up at work. So the, the chair of the department that I work at, let me not draw my glasses. The chair of the department that I work at is an EI guru. Like she's, oh my God, the woman's brilliant. Like I am in awe that this is my mentor and that I get to have her brain to pick. Like, that's awesome. It's just wonderful, but I'm like super fangirling my boss, but like, she's really that cool. That's cool. But yeah, it is. Cause you need, I need it's a cool to fangirl your boss. Yes. But I needed a mentor that had like all these years of experiences. And we were talking about coaching and I was like, yeah, sometimes I have to do hand over hand. And she goes, yes, only, but at first, and then you just reassess and, and, and can, can give verbal cue. And I was like, I hadn't really thought about that because I'm more hands-on-y. And so that hands-on-y, very technical term there. And it's been very humbling to see how that evolution in my skill set has grown. But we got to talking last week about goal setting. Mm -hmm. And and the big piece being in the world of um, RBI, in the world of early intervention, our goals are supposed to be written family-friendly. That's how it should be. So when we write an IFSP goal, it is family-friendly, non-technical jargon, except for when it's not. And in South Carolina, our early intervention, habilitative, rehabilitative services are paid out by Medicaid. So yeah. I have to make sure that my goals are medical of nature. So my goal um, is often one of my goals, a uh, patient will tolerate safest, least restrictive PO diet of ITSI level three with um, out overt signs, symptoms of aspiration. And then I specify the presentation and it is, that is really, really technical, right? That's, that's not user family friendly. I mean, heavens to Betsy is like, sometimes the physicians don't even know what I'm talking about when I write a really technical goal. However, it has to be that technical because Medicaid and the private insurance has to see that. Now, where the when you go to, yes, when you go to different states where the early intervention system and the insurance companies have recognized current best practice, which is where it gets frustrating. The goals don't have to be written Medicaid technical. The goals can be written family friendly. So an appropriate PFD goal would be, um, we'll just go with baby. Baby will hold his own bottle. Baby will finish entire bottle. Baby will not throw up or choke on the bottle. Okay. That's, and I'm, I'm using bottle as an example, but it could be baby will try six new foods, right? Those are, those are family friendly goals, not technical, not insurance approved. So this is where I find my happy medium when I've been asked to sign, like fill out the IFSP, I write my technical goals and I explain them to the families. This is how I have to write it for insurance and for the doctors. This is what it means. And then we, so we have basically two working documents, but I have to be able to submit my plan of care out for every 90 days, yeah. but with embedded within my plan of care, embedded within um, my present level of function, PLOF or whatever the technical acronym is, I do a really good job of summarizing and capturing what my sessions look like and what the family's goals are 
And that away, I mean, God forbid I were to keel over tomorrow, the next family that comes in or the next physician that or yeah. SLP that comes in, they could pick it up and go. But writing family-friendly PFD goals is an amazing strategy. You just have to make sure in your documentation that you line them up correctly so that it meets family yeah. IDEA part C and insurance. Yeah. And going off of that, want to make sure that my families understand the technical terminology because they have to advocate for their child in that yes. way. So that when they go to a physician's, you know, a physician appointment and they're talking about the physician's talking about, you know, G tube feeds or, you know, big decisions are being made. They understand what the physician is talking about because, and I don't mean to be negative or say anything bad about physicians because there's wonderful physicians. Everyone is doing the best that they can, but I find sometimes that some of my families feel not empowered to speak up and I can, I think of one family specifically, and this, this caregiver is a, she's a fighter and she will like contact me after an that. appointment and be like, she'll be like, Aaron, we need to talk. I don't, I, this is what happened. I'm not happy, but I, t I said this to them and I'm like, you're advocating good for you because yes. who else is going to? And, and I like to be that person to, to help them feel empowered to do it because it's, it's means something different coming from the family, but also I want them to know why I'm working on all of their goals. Like I want them to understand where I'm coming from and why this is important and where my head is and prepare them for what a physician might say. Yes. But that also comes from building trust. And just as we talk about building trust with our patients, we have to build trust with our families. And with the goals, there are, you're going to have your ideal set of goals that you want to work on with a patient. And that's great. But that might not be the exact same goal that a family might have. They might want this child to just eat this one specific food because it is very important to their culture, or it is something that the child used to eat and they loved. And they're really just that holds a place like it, it represents something to them or you know they they might want this child to just say this one word that is not core vocabulary and you're like we need to work on other things but if it's important to the family it is important as long as it's safe yes and if you if the child is making progress with something that's important to the family they're then going to buy into more of what else you're working on because that's how they find value. You know, this is their family. This is their ch child, grandchild, brother, sister, whatever the relationship is, but connection, like I'm learning so much from the occupational therapists I work with about building connection and relationship and food is relationship. And it's our job to help the families connect again, because the, what, like when feeding is not working, they're not connecting. Mealtime is where you sit down. And as adults, we play, there's a book called play. I forget who the author is, but we posted it on Instagram before and I'm almost done with it, but it's a really good read. And they talk about, you know, when we sit at mealtime, we play by having a conversation, by talking about our day, by 
laughing, by enjoying the food, by talking about how good the food is, who made the food, you know, discussing the recipe. Kids don't have, that's not their play. So how do we get them to connect with family during mealtime to make it more positive when it has just been a battle? But we have to listen to our families because we haven't been there for all of that. And you have to listen to what they're not saying also, yes. because they're, they're not, they're not going to say a lot, but you can feel it. And, and one other thing, and I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but I think it's also in the way that you ask the question, we, you, you hear about when someone says, tell me what mealtime looks like, or tell me to, for an open-ended response. But also when you ask a yes, no question, you might, you're putting in the parent's mind am I going to give the wrong answer? Do you do this at mealtime? Oh, should I be doing that? I'm not doing that. I don't know. Tell me about mealtime. Tell me about how you present the food instead of, do you present little amounts or or large amounts? Do you present it all together or do they put it on the plate? Because now they're thinking what one of the answers is wrong because you asked me a yes, no, which one's wrong. And you have to ask yes, no questions a lot, but, but thinking about that, that that parent could have that response when they're already coming to you hurting because they don't have the answers no that makes that's perfect sense you yes okay i have so many thoughts that i want to segue into the next section but i had a couple of thoughts sorry for i've been talking no. with a lot of ot's recently and they you know like it's just... <laughs> I, I my friend with karen your... and i will talk for hours Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I I talked with your Dylan, your uh, your ED over there, and he had me thinking the exact same thought process. Yes. Okay. So one of the strategies for when I embed the RBI and I'm actually looking in in the house, I <laughs> I'm gonna pick on the dads for a second, and I'm gonna pick on the dads um, for a good reason. I just ran into uh, one of Bear's little buddies, mommies, right? We were out working and um, had a cup of coffee uh, and I ran into her at the coffee shop and we got to talking and she goes, my husband is a great toddler, little boy, dad. He is not a great infant dad. And I was like, oof, but are any of them really a good infant dad when you're breastfeeding? Because you can't take it's not like they have the boob, right? And it was just, it was funny. And I let her vent, but at the core of her, her vent and she's sleep deprived, the baby's six weeks old. Like it was her first like huzzah into the public realm. I could tell her exhaustion and I could see that it was coming from a place of, I need help, but I don't know how to ask for help. And mm-hmm. so it made me think of the, the dads that we see, because I see so many dads that desperately want to help their partner, but they are not in the, they don't have the capabilities to breastfeed, but when they're doing a bottle feed, they are like a fish out of water. And so one of the suggestions that I have for the RBI is when we say seek to understand, let's physically watch where they're sitting and how they're sitting. What's that parent's body language? Are they sitting on the edge of their seat? And I like lean in, but are they sitting Mm -hmm. on the edge of the seat? Do they not have good body mechanics in and of themselves? Do do they need lateral support? So I always start off with, um, I love the big bang theory, go figure, right? And Sheldon has his seat in the big bang theory. And then he doesn't like it when anybody else Mm -hmm. takes a seat because he doesn't know where to sit. That's me in real life. 
even down to the dinner table. And, and so I say, go get in your favorite seat, go get in your comfy spot. And then I make suggestions there like, okay, well, which hand is dominant? And, and, and we troubleshoot and it's amazing how when we troubleshoot that and we walk them through, talk them through and coach them through, they just relax. And, and you can see often, not always, but often you'll see the tiny human relax, but that same thing goes for, um, when we're sitting at the kitchen table and you're doing RBI, you can see, I mean, yes, we have swing shift mealtime. We have swing shift mealtime because bear will eat and then I'll stop eating. And then a couple hours later, he's like, Ooh, I need to eat again. I mean, cause he's a growing tiny human, but poor bear, he always gets picked on. But one of the pieces that I've noticed is that when we go to the homes, we don't, you have a preconceived notion as to what the dinner table looks like. I can't tell you how many tables I've seen that are like the high top tables, or they don't have, they have like a bench seat as opposed to like the bench seats are cute, right? My brother split his lip falling off a bench seat. I remember this as, as a child, but that may not offer the postural support that our patient with CP or Down syndrome needs because they have low tone or they're too tight. So they may need a different seating arrangement in order to be set for optimal success so that they can engage with the fine motor hand to mouth as opposed to being hyper-focused on the core, just trying to set up. Because if they don't focus on their core, I'm trying to demonstrate, then they're kind of like mm-hmm. falling all over the place. So those are some, some little changes. And, and this is not, this is not Michelle Dawson saying you have to do these physical changes to the environment. This is me saying, seek to understand. And do they need adaptive equipment brought into the house? Do they need durable medical equipment that you need to co-write a letter with the OT and the PT to get those resources in there? And if they do that, then we write the letter. OTs and PTs, they make, they do really good letters here. So we do need their support and, and getting that. There is an amazing link on ASHA. It's um, asha.org backslash site assist. And it's all about the ICD, ICF, International Classification of Functioning, Pediatric Feeding Swallowing Codes. Uh, we'll have that up on social media here shortly, but it is an excellent framework for how to treat PFD within RBI down to like the goals and examples of questions. And it is such a powerful tool. I was going to, and this is an engagement strategy, also a coach coaching strategy that even with a parent that doesn't need to be engaged as much. I don't know why I'm like, I'm holding a child, like a child's head. Um, but <laughs> you don't I hold a child's head often, like that. <laughs> but, <laughs> If yes. I'm sideline, you know, we're just like, yes, okay, fair. Yeah. Uh, not that, like, yeah, they're like, the, don't worry, don't worry. I know how to hold a baby. <laughs> but I will often, I talk to my babies. Like, I mm-hmm. will during a feeding session, like, and sometimes I talk telepathically to them, like, you know, you, you're in the NICU, you're like, we got this today. You're not, we're not, no funny business, like, no DSATs, no Brady's, we got it. Like, we're chill you read my energy, I read your energy. But oftentimes during like an eval or during a session, I will like talk to the child. Like, I see that you're showing me that this is too fast. I'm watching your pupils dilate. I can tell that this means that we're stressed. I, you're telling me we need to try a slower flow nipple or 
just, you know, as we, with our, you know, birth to three population for language, when I narrate as you and other people have said, you know, be the Morgan Freeman of their world, it's also our job to, to narrate what this child and this infant is doing when they're feeding, even if they're not an infant, if they're, if, you know, any of our children that aren't communicating, even our children that are older, that don't have the words to communicate how food is making them feel. But by doing that, I'm, I'm not staring at the parent being like, he's doing this. She's doing this. This is why I'm like, I'm communicating. I'm hopefully using a soft tone of voice to mm-hmm. help the child with that regulation. I'm not trying to freak them out and, and any more means, but even at the end, like when I go say bye to the child, okay, work, you, are you ready to work on this this week? Like mom's, you know, family's going to try this. We got to be ready. And I'm obviously going to address the parent. I'm not just only talking to a child in the session, but it, it, I think it puts less pressure on it. And it's a way to like, I'm connecting with this child. And when I was in the NICU, I would always say like, we're teaching them communication first because they're communicating something in their feeding. And we have to teach the families to understand that communication. It's not just we're teaching them to feed their child. We're teaching them to communicate with their child. And so if they feel it, if you continue to talk about it, like communication, it's like, okay, I know you're frustrated. You know, the family might be frustrated because this child, this infant's having difficulties, but they're communicating. This is communication with you. You have the honor now of understanding what that communication is and advocating for what they need and building that dance with them Um, because that's a victory in and of itself as weird as that may seem that the that we know this is communication and in terms of engaging families I think it's so important to acknowledge those I call them the small victories I don't think any victory is small but oh he like calling those out oh Billy he sat in that chair for two minutes without having any sort of like, oh, you know, last week he would only kiss this food. Now we licked it. Like continuing to acknowledge whatever those small victories are so that family, because there will be some families that every little thing that this child does, they will be like thrilled and have like a moment and it's wonderful. And then you'll have the families that their measurement of success is very different than yours. But that's when it's your job to be kind of like, not the crazy person, but the one that's just overexcited unless this child is, you know, much more anxious and your level of volume. It's an OT thing. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to make the OTs mad. Like I'm not saying free, but like, yes, matching their energy, but also making sure that you're pointing out those victories and congratulating parents on what they're doing. Marsha Dunklein talks a lot about finding, what did she say last night? Finding a way to celebrate every meal, like Mm -hmm. finding a way to celebrate. She talks about that a lot. And so it's, it may not always be like, I'm pulling you in, but I'm demonstrating how I'm enjoying this, how I'm seeing success, how we're building this relationship and that then they may come in and join more so because they're, they're watching what's happening and, and the happiness of that. You, but the, the 
biggest part of that is that it is a happy, positive experience. And that is when we're doing RBI, when we're doing therapy in general, it has to be a happy, positive experience, but especially with routine space. No, that's perfect. Okay. All right. So for me, for families and siblings, I, I have to preface this from y'all have got to go check out notube.com. Please make sure you don't type in notube.net because if you do notube.net, it takes you to like a tire or like a tire repair company. So this is not what we're looking for. We're looking for notube.com and they have amazing resources and they talk about how And yes, they are like the premier pediatric feeding tube dependency eradication program in the world. I'm not sure eradication is the right word, but like that is their specialty. They're based out of Austria. Um, We had, um, we we love OTs. We had one of their OTs on this past fall, Dr. Marion Russell, I believe was her last name. Mm -hmm. And she was wonderful. And, And she talked about how one of their programs is simply getting on the floor with the, as a family Mm -hmm. and having a picnic. And I was like, okay, run this by me one more time because I can't sit on my floor and eat because dog and Chewbacca show up. And then they think that this is Mm -hmm. a picnic for them. Um, especially Chewbacca, he's gotten rather fluffy in his old age, but she explained that you have to be able to start from scratch sometimes. And that the kitchen table and their high chair, their booster seat, it could have so many negative associations because we, we don't know what transpired behind that closed door before we got there. We may have an inkling, but we don't really know what that looks like. So she said, we set out the tablecloth and then we all get down and they have like a tea party. They have a tea party or a picnic on the floor. And it's just a positive experience. And to me, that was just so profound. And they start there. It may not be where you want to end. Their end goal is to increase as much by mouth as functionally safe for the child. I think they have like an excess of like 97, 90 some percent, is it 91, 93% um, success rate and completely getting children off of their um, feeding tubes. However, they are very particular about who they accept into the program. And it is truly interprofessional practice. And everything is done with the core being the parent, the core being the caregiver. So any communication between continuity of care partners, between like, if I as the SLP have a question for the OT, or if I have the SLP has a question for psych, I send the, the message. However, the family can see that entire communication the, Mm -hmm. that level of honest, raw dialogue, that's, that's a dream, right? I mean, I, I ran into this position today where I talked to the mom and we talked about getting endocrinology on. So I called our sweet friend, Leslie, who is at the, um, the head of down at the feeding clinic and told her, you know, and like, and I asked mom, is it okay if I call and talk to that? She was like, yes. So we called and they ran with it. Nurse practitioner on the team was like, yes, we need endo. So they get the referral over to endocrinology and then they call mom and she's like, no, I don't want to do that just yet. And I'm like, cause like, we just had the conversation mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, so where, 
So now I'm regrouping in my head. Okay. So where was my communication breakdown? Did, did I, I, I mean, like just what happened from our original conversation that we wanted it, even if it's just to look over labs, right? It, it, it's a, it's a starting point, but within the no tube approach, it is um, every communication is done with the parent on board. I wish we had that here because if we did, I feel like then, okay, we would still have our endocrinology appointment. And like, I, we really need an endocrinology appointment, mm -hmm. but that's phenomenal to have that much parent caregiver buy-in. And, and when you see the sibling interaction and all of a sudden, there's no pressure to have to like get this many calories in by mouth because that just is a natural outgrowth of this. This is just, let's just focus on the fun and focus on the happy meal time. And again, this is not for every patient. This is for the set patients that meet their very specific requirements. And it's, it's hard to get in. And I think they're, I don't, I don't think that they haven't covered by insurance yet in the States. I think they're still working on getting their program covered by insurance. So. Yeah, but I, there was something when we talked like there was some grants or there was some scholarships so that if you have a family mm -hmm. that's wanting to do this, there's options available. Yeah, so. but like to carry that over is that it it is making it positive and continuing mm -hmm. to have that communication with the family. I think, and and we talk about like siblings specifically too, how, and it depends on the age of the sibling. Cause you know, yes. you can walk into a house and, and siblings can feel the hurt of, yeah, especially if this child is medically complex and all the doctor's appointments and the struggles and the trauma. Cause I don't, I'm learning more about trauma and how common it is, you know, how many yes. things can actually cause trauma because that was a word that I didn't use very often. But in some instances, the siblings don't have that trauma that the parents have. So if you are the caregivers or the grandparents or whoever, but if you can engage sibling to model or to participate or to have that joy, because a lot of times, even if the sibling enjoys mealtime. If it's a struggle for another sibling, it's not a positive environment for anybody. Yes. But if you can bring that joy back and allow families to look and see the joy that the one sibling has, and now at least a positive experience that the other sibling has had, it can, it can bring joy all around. And you can remember, cause there's something very special about seeing something from a child's eyes. And the joy, like, I just think about there's one kiddo that, that we see in the clinic and like, everything is like the greatest thing. Like, I'm so strong. I can push this door open and I have super bubble powers and I'm a superhero. And you're like, wow, life is grand. Can I be you? Like, I <laughs> patient that I'm like, if my whole life could be her on a swing, like if my happiness level could be her on a swing, yes. I would be the happiest person alive because yes. it's just, so bringing back to them some sort of joy, even if it's very small can, can aid in them wanting to engage 
And I said, and I, I think I talked about this in one of our therapy tips is giving them like, like you said, observing them first, because this is their mealtime and they're coming at it. And Marsha Dunklein talked about this last night too. They're doing the best that they can. So don't be yes. assume, you know, be unassuming. Don't take everything away. Like if the child is if something is working to an extent, don't completely change it. Like don't change too many things at once the because iPad. that's scary in and of itself. Yeah. Marcia, they were, she was talking about if, if an iPad is helping a family, don't just rip the iPad away because you think, you know, they shouldn't be using screen time. Like we need to adjust slowly because mm -hmm. this is what has been, whatever we call working has been working from a certain standpoint. And this is where their starting point is. And with our littler kiddos that maybe are working on transitioning to a different modality or weaning or something that maybe, fa maybe family hasn't done on their own yet. A, that's why I think being in home is wonderful because I find that my families are much more comfortable because this is their mm -hmm. space. This is my chair. This is my food. Like they automatically take charge because I don't know where everything is. So you're going to have to help me. Like I can't. Um, and, but I make sure to have parents jump in as soon as possible because the longer that they just watch you, the scarier it becomes. Because if you're not, if you're doing this and you're the person that has the training and you're doing it by yourself for a while before it's my turn. Like, I don't, I don't know. This makes me more nervous because it's like, it's, you know, I try to have, you know, I've, this is the first time I'm having a student. I try and let her jump in as soon as possible because I remember my best supervisors were like, here you go. I will help you. I'm here to support you. You're not, I'm not going to let you fail, but like, I'm not going to have you watch me for six weeks and just observe because then it's, it's scarier. And so if they, if they see them, you know, they can watch you have successes all day. That's not wonder. Like, that's nice, but like now you're the only one that can do it and I can't do it. So. Yes. Okay. So you, you, yes. All right. I'm all excited. So with, sorry, I no, this is perfect with, with my families. Um, I've had a couple of moms tell me, well, they don't, they do better with dad. If I sit down at the table like how I'm signing. If I sit down at the table and we're all trying to go to eat, then the baby or the toddler or the child starts having like this meltdown where they're having the meltdown because mom may is oh, typically not always mom's typically the one that has to focus on getting the meal in the child. Right. So sometimes for me, just engaging the parent and the sibling is getting them to come stand adjacent to the table, come stand adjacent to the child with, and that's a huge step just to have food on the table. Is that where I want to be? No. Do I want us trying 15 new vegetables every single quarter, or do I want us tapered weaning down to this, this, and this? Yes, I do. But I have to start with just simply getting the family back to the table. One strategy that I have found to be incredibly successful is which I, I picked up on that from food chaining because in food chaining, um, Sherry Fricker talks about like how we have like all the different colors and how we're going different places. But I really feel like we have to describe everything when we're going through it. And often 
I'll have the siblings come and sit at the table and we're like over, over exaggerating what something smells. I'm like, oh my gosh, that French fry smells so salty. I mean, granted, now I'm doing it through like a face shield on the other side of a mask. And I'm thinking one day this kid's going to realize Shell can't really smell the French fry through like all of that rigmarole, but we, we fake it till we make it. And then we're, oh, did you try that ice cream? It was so sweet. It was so cold. But when we give the adjectives and we have the siblings use their adjectives because families have funny made up words. Um, the boys call my ear, the boys call them earbugs, right? So like when, when I'm driving home from um, the university and like Aaron and I almost talk every single day about like 400 different things, I'm like, hang on, I got to find my earbugs. Like she, you don't bat an eye, you know what I'm talking about. But if your families have fun, intimate nicknames for something or like a favorite family food. Like our friend Annalisa got us hooked on a king cake. I've never had a king cake up until two years ago. And now the boys see February on the map and somehow February doesn't mean Valentine's Day. It now means king cake and and all of the Mardi Gras beads, right? Thank you, Shrove Tuesday. Mm -hmm. But those having the siblings there to give us those examples on and one other strategy that I love doing, and this does tie back into the RBIs, is I like to go grocery shopping with the kids, especially for my little ones that have ASD. And we're just trying to get them to want to touch the food or um, experience it. So I have one little guy that on Mondays, we, um, we have ASD and we pick up the grocery bag with his sibling and we go through the house and they have a little fake cash register that for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how to turn it on. And my student couldn't figure out how to turn it on. He goes, you push the on button. And I was like, oh, I'm an idiot. Like I didn't even see the on button, but see, I didn't have my reading glasses. So like middle age, right? To be fair. Yeah. To be fair. Um, yeah, I did get a couple new pairs. Huzzah, they're all over the house now. But uh, that's, that's, it was amazing because now he, as opposed to absolutely physically reacting and pulling back from food, it's a game. We go through because he loves counting money. So we go through and we're picking out and we're describing the hard yellow lemon versus the squishy yellow banana, which we may or may not attempt to squish through. And then it like explodes, but like, it explodes out the banana peel and he gets it on his hands. And then I'm like, oh, just lick it off. You're fine. And now we're trying the food. I mean, we have yet to squish a lemon, but I mean, we've squished the banana, but yeah. having, having the family there, that's been, it's been so much fun doing that, going grocery shopping. And I mean, like we don't do that in an actual grocery store. We're doing that across the kitchen in the living room, but when we did have pre-COVID, I miss pre-COVID, um, and we went to the grocery store, I wouldn't have him lick his hands in the grocery store, but it was yeah. still the experience and the exposure. Okay. That was a lot. We only have 10 minutes. Oh my gosh. And we got to go through tapered weaning. Okay. Okay. Anything well, else you want to cover for siblings? Or I think we got for, I think that was good. Those for were now. some good strategies. There's always more, but you know. Yes. Yes. Um, we don't okay. have all night. <laughs> no, 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 we don't because mommy has to get up really early in the morning because we have a sphere project that I have to make sure gets um, finished driving and taped. Um, second grade's hard, Erin. Second grade is really hard. Just putting that thought out there. Okay. So our strategies for tapered weaning protocols. This, let me preface this whole conversation. You as the individual clinician do not get to say, 
this is the moment in time that we're going to start in on a tapered weaning protocol. This is 100% a team driven approach, because if this is done wrong, it could be detrimental to a child. Okay. So there's, there's my like caveat. Okay. So why don't, why don't you take us through some tapered weaning protocols? Do you want me to start? You want me to start? I can start. Yeah. Okay. See, this is the stuff that when it's recorded, y'all don't hear us like editing this out. Isn't this lovely? Haha. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, there is a great resource. Let me toss on my reading glasses. Um, a systematic process for weaning children from with aspiration from thick and liquids. Um, Journal of um, um, JAMA Otolaryngology, Head, Neck, and Surgery, January 1st, 2018. Walter, W-O-L-T-E-R, was um, the uh, lead author on the article. And what they do is they go through and do a retrospective case study analysis from um, 2010 to 2015 uh, with uh, 50 individuals um, in the research study. I'll have to send this link so that we can get this one up as well. And of the 50 children, um, the average time for the tapered weaning protocol was approximately six to nine months. And the kids were on average between seven months and um, 18 months in age. Okay. So that's your age limit, seven months to 18 months. They were all on a thickened liquid, varying levels of viscosity and over six to seven months. Um, I think it was 36% of them. Um, uh, no, 39% of or 39 of the 50 children were able to be completely weaned off of uh, thickened liquids. Now, <laughs> when they go through and they explain it, they give very specific um, etiologies Therm. and comorbidities. Yes, mm -hmm. it's and it's very it's very specific because again, this is the thing that if you do it wrong and you do it solo, you could hurt a child. So mm -hmm. their protocol was if the child met the requirements, they tapered it 10% of the thickener every two weeks. So last Tuesday, last Tuesday, last Wednesday, I do believe um, Leslie Wilfong was um, uh, my guest on, and we talked about um, to test or not to test um, Shakespeare, right? I like nerdy things. Um, and, and we talked about how you obtain a baseline video fluoroscopic swallow study. And then do we need to go back and do repeat instrumentals when that's radiation exposure? And for a lot of these children, their conditions will have lifelong exposures. Or when they meet certain requirements, does the team decide to start thinning and the rate with which they thin? All of that's case dependent. If you have a child that has a structural abnormality like laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, and it's not severe enough that um, it warrants surgery at that moment in time, it could be that over time with a 10% reduction or a quarter of a scoop reduction in thickener, you can thin the liquids while the laryngeal vestibule and the larynx drops and goes into a more mature location or the child overcomes, say they had cardiac surgery and we're yeah. buying time for innervation to pop back. Right. But this again is not a unilateral decision. Mm -hmm. And, and they do talk about how in the research article, I think like three of the patients developed pneumonia, um, yeah. aspiration pneumonia. And they but, had very strict rules of like, if 
this child showed any of these symptoms or had any respiratory infections or anything like that, then they would go back to either they went back to what they knew was safe or um, the least restrictive diet. They had very, it was very specific, but the success of it was very impressive. Yes. Now, Boston Children's Hospital has a ton of resources on their tapered weaning protocol. I believe it's Cincinnati when they talk about the triple scope. Uh, triple scope is um, uh, nasoscopy. Um, it goes through the nose, through the mouth, and into the stomach. So you're getting ENT, pulmonary, and bronchoscopy, and laryngoscopy. Yeah. There it is. Yay. See, you know all the fancy we'll words get it. at the end we'll of the night. It. <laughs> it's a team, baby. But those, they have those stringent requirements for patient safety. So what is the takeaway point here? If you think that your child that you're working with would benefit from a tapered weaning protocol, that's when you have to, with permission, with continuity of care permission from um, the family, that's when you have to reach out to the pediatrician, to the, um, if it's the child's part of a specialty clinic and say, hey, I think that we need muster. Can you please, um, uh, can we discuss this? And our friend Stephanie is on an um, outpatient rehab team, Leslie, Melissa, they all say they need to hear from us as the home health private practice clinician, the one that's in the field. They need our insight to know that we are there to support because these kids can't go back and forth to the specialty hospitals or the specialty clinics every single week to be seen. I mean, sometimes they can, but it's, that's kind of rare. So it's us in the trenches, literally, because there's been snow and mud holes. And so like it's us in the trenches that actually help give the direction of, okay, well, I'm seeing a little bit more overt sign and symptoms or, okay, this one was a harder downgrade on thickener. So let's stay at this one for an extra week or, oh, mm-hmm. the child developed a, um, caught a head cold from fed preschool, or they had a stomach bug. So instead of progressing with the tapered weaning protocol, let's plateau. Let's give the child a minute to hold their own and then go for. And that's incredibly empowering and exciting for the family. So, all right. So that's a PubMed research article. There was one other thought, Erin, that I had that is absolutely gone to me. It will come back around. All right. Do you have any other, oh, the increased viscosity of foods. I will slowly increase the viscosity of food. That is a, that's a great strategy. So if you have a child that's only taking pureed, like a thin level one or level two baby food, they may be nine years old. So chronologically there, but what is their actual food age? That's something that like I've talked about, we've talked about on here. It's we've put it in webinars, but the food age is, let me give the analogy. So you have the chronological age and the adjusted age. So say the chronological age is their first birthday, but yet they were born two months premature. So their adjusted age is that of a 10 month old, but say they had a stroke or an infarct and now their developmental age is eight months old. But maybe because the placement of that stroke or that infarct, they required a feeding tube. So instead of, like you said, when we opened, they normally eat eight times a day. Well, they haven't been able to eat eight times a day. Maybe they've been able to eat once a day with the nurse or 
twice a week when the um, feeding therapist is there. Their food age may be that of a six-month-old. They may be able to safely consume thin purees. So we've got um, chronological age, adjusted age, developmental age. When I use my term food age, my families get it. It's like this aha moment. And it's so awesome to see. So I say, okay, like instead of us jumping all the way to here, yes, we want the cake, we want the chicken nuggets, we want um, the, the crackers, let's slowly increase the viscosity according to their food age so that they can demonstrate that vertical chew, they can um, demonstrate the transitional chew with their tongues making over to different sides to help control the bolus. And with those tiny changes, it's really awesome to see how you get to your end goal of a more developmentally appropriate diet by just three degrees of change, mm -hmm. pulling on the implementation science piece, three degrees of change. We did it. You and I could have spent like three hours on this. <laughs> yup. Yup. Okay. So it's a Tuesday. It's Shrove Tuesday. Tomorrow's Ash Wednesday. We got, it's a week, baby. I've never heard. I, I just, I was so thrown off. Yeah. No, it's Pancake Tuesday. Tuesday. Fat, yeah. Yes, show show Tuesday. It's when you have um, you typically eat pancakes for dinner, and um, we did not. Um, I pulled out fish tonight for we'll be eating a lot of fish for lunch, but we had we had fish. All right, as always, everybody, uh, we appreciate you and your support because this really has been three years, three years of a labor of love journey for Aaron and I. So thank y'all. So be sure to check us out on. Uh, at First Bite on Instagram, at First Bite on Facebook. We love it when you uh, leave um, a review on the Apple podcast or Instagram messages and, and, and tell us, message us on Instagram. Tell us if there's a speaker that you want us to book or check into at, because we do love that as well. So there it is. Those are our, our thoughts for the day. And we'll be sure to drop that ASHA um, ICF pediatric feeding on the um, Instagram because that's a killer website. So everybody till uh, next Tuesday, have a good night. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember... Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.